0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Cy Young Award winner and World Series champion, Barry Zito. All right, let's do this. And now, here's
1: Here's your your host,
0: Brett Boone. Boone. Welcome to the
1: Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a fellow Trojan. He's a three-time All-Star World Series champion. He won the AL Cy Young Award in 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry Zito. Barry, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Yeah, Boney. Uh, it's my pleasure, man. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good.
1: I read, I read something. You learned to play guitar in the minor leagues. True or false? Because I got a story for you.
2: Absolutely True.
1: Really, you, you didn't pick one up because I know you grew up and we'll get to that later. I know you grew up in a, in a musical family, to yeah. say the least,
2: but you didn't start till the minor leagues. Yeah, my dad never wanted me to play to go into music. He said I couldn't make a living. And so, you know, he so finally, when I signed with the A's at a college, I bought my first guitar. And I think at that point he was like, OK, if you want to treat this as a hobby, <laughs> you're cool with it.
1: That, that's a bit, you know, because I'm the farthest <laughs> I've got two. Two left, two left hands. I know they say left feet, but when it comes to music, but I did the same thing in 1990. I signed, I get, I get sent to Peninsula, Virginia, uh, for the Carolina league. And there was a guy named Jim Campanis, who's also a Trojan. And, uh, he was our catcher on that team. I had played with him at SC. He was, he was a junior when I was a freshman, but he said, uh, I said, what's up with the guitar, dude? And he, and he, like, he goes, Monique, Hey, you got these are long trips, man. You got You got to keep your mind active. So I'm just kind of teaching myself and he actually could play pretty good. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. I said, this is all just teaching yourself. He said, yeah. And he was he was pretty good. So That's what did I do? Cool. I went out, bought a guitar. I don't know if I played two notes on that thing. Six months later, that thing's gone. Somebody bought it from me. So I, I had similar ambitions. I just never followed through. But uh, no, interesting. interesting. A lot
2: harder than it looks. I think. It,
1: it is. I've got a son that that loves playing the guitar, and, and he taught himself. And he's actually pretty good now. And he plays, you know, he's 17, but he, he's out there. He's like, hey, I'm going over to my buddy's house. And, you know, I don't know the lingo. We're going to gig or something. And, uh, no, it's pretty cool to watch because from, from me, not – not doing anything you know I can't I can't do anything I can't carry a tune I can't play the piano to watch that it, it's pretty cool for me because it's so far from from uh my safe zone okay Absolutely. you're born in, you're born in Las Vegas and uh you moved to San Diego uh once again I just, I just want to get in give me a little bit of background your parents I know they were musicians and uh tell me what it was like tell me tell me the story of a little Barry Zito growing up
2: yeah. So my father worked with Nat King Cole. He was his road conductor in the sixties, um, fifties and sixties. And then my mom, uh, dropped out of UCLA to go sing with Nat. Um, and so that's where they met. She was a background singer, uh, about 15 years younger than he was. And, uh, they fell in love in New York and then Nat died. So they moved to Las Vegas and my father became a talent manager there and was managing lounge acts on the strip. Um, And my mother was a pastor in a church that her, that her uh, mom started a spiritual church. And, uh, so basically once I turned six, uh, my mother's mother took her church out to San Diego and my mother, my mother wanted to follow and help her. And so, you know, we moved to San Diego at that point, um, And that really kind of set the stage for me and my father working together in the backyard every day because now there was no music entertainment industry in San Diego. And here he was, you know, at this point, a talent manager. And he had me who, you know, I I really enjoyed baseball. I played t-ball that year and ran out to the center of the field. And, you know, for whatever reason, even though there wasn't a pitching position. And so my father really dedicated his life to helping me, you know, um, achieve my dream of baseball.
1: Yeah, I I heard that. And and it's really it's pretty fascinating because your dad and I think he said this about himself. I had no clue about the game of baseball. And he was reading books and and trying to learn as much as he could about it because his son, this was this was obviously going to be your passion. And he wanted to be as supportive as as he possibly could be.
2: That's right. And it just inspired me so much as a dad. Now, you know, I have three boys of my own and you know, my father didn't know the first thing about sports. He was, I never saw him, <laughs> he worked, I don't even think I ever saw him get his heart rate up my entire life. <laughs> and, you know, he just, he just dedicated himself to learning what he had to teach me. And so he was always a couple pages ahead in the books and in the instructional books on pitching and, you know, hitting and workouts and all the things we had to know as young athletes. And, uh, he was reading it the night before and I didn't even know this. He told me this when I was in my twenties, that he was always just a couple pages ahead of me.
1: Always sports or was it always, be- I mean, always, always baseball, or, or were there other sports? You play anything else?
2: No, I actually, ironically, I mean, I tell people, but this is the truth. I was always the worst athlete on the team. I mean, even all through my major league career, I, I was always the slowest runner, uh, the worst jumper. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I couldn't even do a pull up. Probably, you know, I remember in middle school we had this thing called like the presidential, and you'd have to do pull ups, and I couldn't even do one pull up when I was like 13, 14. So. Um, I tried my hand at football and basketball for one year each, but uh, did not work out
1: guy. I'm pretty fond of, uh, and I know he was a part of your life. Uh, he still lives in the San Diego area. Randy Jones. Give me the, give me the backstory of how you met Randy Jones, how he helped you.
2: Randy Jones. Yeah. He won a Cy Young in the seventies with the Padres and, you know, incredible character and just such an amazing guy. And, uh, My father got wind of the fact that Randy was given, you know, pitching lessons out of his backyard in Poway, San Diego, um, you know, for 50 bucks a lesson. And uh, this is back, you know, in the in the early 90s. And my parents couldn't afford anything. You know, my father did make a lot of money in his music career, but um, did not save any of it. And so I grew up, you know, really with nothing um, financially. And so my parents, you know, invested that $50 a week uh for months and months and, and ultimately I worked with Randy for 4 years um and that just helped me so much you know develop my curveball and you know um you know just learning how to pitch really
1: yeah Randy's a, he's a good dude I've gotten to know him you know since I've lived in the San Diego area obviously he's a staple uh with the Padres he did a he did a show a few years back but 10 years ago I took my oldest son and my dad they went on a fishing trip in uh, Mexico. He had a show at the time and it was pretty cool. And then over the years, you know, I'll go down to, to Petco and uh, you know, to see a Padre game here and there. And I'm always greeted by Randy, but yeah, as, as you said, what a, what a good guy he did. Win a I mean, We had him on the Boone podcast a few months back, but uh, mm. pretty cool. You went to El Cajon high and you end up transferring uh to the university of San Diego high school. I, I think now it's known as cathedral. Um, Take Me through those high school years and, and why'd you transfer? Uh,
2: yeah, no, I mean, truth be told, I mean, I went to Grossmont High actually, and um, I was at Grossmont, oh, was Grossmont. okay, yeah, I went to Grossmont, and um, I mean, totally honest, I just you know, the <clears throat> I wasn't into you know the right things, uh, I had some friends that were into you know things that were not ideal, and um you know, I think that I developed a reputation for having kind of off the field habits that weren't great. And so, but I was good, you know, good enough at baseball. I mean, I made varsity my junior year and, um, honestly the coach just, you know, the coach didn't love me and, um, you know, felt the need to show me up in front of the other players and, uh, belittle me and all these things. And, uh, it just wasn't a good situation for me. Um, and so I transferred to, to uni my second, you know, my, my senior year, um, my dad was a big part of that. I think he knew that I had to kind of get out of there. Uh, and also, you know, I, I had to get away from those friends too, cause they were really dragging me down in life. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I went to uni and just had a whole new life, new friends. Uh, for the first time I was like kind of the popular kid instead of like the kid that, you know, hated the popular kids. Um, and, uh it was it was awesome i got drafted you know pretty late at a high school um in the 59th round uh but it was really because the scout who was a guy named craig weissman who's an incredible guy he wanted to work with me and he wanted to um change my mechanics you know at that point i was throwing dead over the top like literally 12 o'clock on a clock um and it just wasn't conducive to arm speed and so uh, the reason that the, the Mariners drafted me is so Craig could, Craig had the rights to work with me and he worked with me in the entire summer. Uh, we'd go out to Grossmont junior college and I ended up picking up, you know, probably seven or eight miles an hour by the time I got to UC Santa Barbara. And then, you know, eight months later I was hitting 93, which was up from 81, uh, you know, about eight months before in high school. And so just an incredible transformation all based on mechanics.
1: While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone podcast.
0: Dan? Thanks, Boone. Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOON. B-O-O-N-E, bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code BOON at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21-plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369. And now back to
1: my interview with Barry Zito. You went to UCSB. Uh, and and by the way, and you know, my grandfather he he uh, played for a long time, but scouted for even a, a longer time. And I always remember, Barry. You know, you're you're a few years younger than me, but but I always remember Gramps coming to me, hey, you're gonna, you're going to see this Zito kid soon. And I'm, you know, you know when you're playing, and and you hear that, okay, how old is he, Gramps? He's seventeen. <laughs> I said, okay, whatever, we'll see him when we see him. But uh, it came to fruition. Next thing you know, I'm I'm hooking horns with you in the early 2000s. But Gramps was a big, he was a big fan of yours all through all through high school, and because he covered your area, Gramps is from El Cajon. Yeah, and uh, you know it's it's funny. Years and years later, I remember I think back. I go, he was always telling me about Barry Zito. It was Barry Zito, and he was always talking about Jake Peavy. Uh, Wow. And, and you know, it was interesting and they all, you know, you both, you both made it and had great careers, but, uh, you know, that's, that's my grandpa's story for this time. I was like, I always like mixing him in whenever I can. Ah, uh, all right. Beautiful. So you're a gaucho, you're a gaucho. Then you're, you're an all American as a freshman at UC Santa Barbara. And then you head over to Pierce college JC, cause you want to get drafted. I want to hear this story. You end up getting drafted in the third round, uh, but then you transfer again and you become, well, you made the best choice of your life and you became a, a Trojan because you wanted to have, <laughs> yeah. your, have your name alongside Mr. Boone. But uh, <laughs> That's right. take me through that, those three. And now you're becoming the most transferred kid in the history of, of baseball before he, before he makes his pro debut, you end up being a first round pick and an all American out of USC, but take me through Santa Barbara to Pierce college to USC. and And my question is, you transferred to Pierce and I understood that cuz you want to go to a JC you can sign a year earlier. Uh you end up getting drafted in the third round, you end up not signing. That that was the peculiar thing to me. Uh just give me a snapshot of that time in your life.
2: Yeah, well, you know, my father was still very much my career manager and so, you know, I went to Santa Barbara. There was only a couple schools that wanted me out of high school, right? I mean, I had a big curveball, but I was throwing 81, 82. And so Santa Barbara got me. I was in the bullpen to start, and then I, I became the Sunday starter. And I did make the All American as a freshman, but I mean, my numbers—I mean, just honestly—they were terrible. My ERA was in the mid-sixes. Uh, I think I was three and six with like a six ERA, but I had you know an incredible amount of strikeouts compared to my innings pitch. So, you know, I I was striking guys out and giving up runs is basically all I was doing. And so, um, coming back, at, you know, as a sophomore, at Santa Barbara, I was going to be the number one starter. But my father was very adamant about me, you know, transferring and making myself more available to the scouts. And, you know, his thought was um, all these scouts in L.A., they don't have much to do during the week. Right. Because they're waiting for the big college games on the weekend. So if I could transfer to a junior college and pitch on the Thursday game, they would all have nothing to do on Thursday. So they'd all come see me. And again, my he was a brilliant career manager. And so. I did leave Santa Barbara, uh, even though I didn't want to. I was literally crying. I did not want to leave the beach, did not want to leave all my friends. And so I went and moved to the Valley. Um, I ended up living with a kid on the team's parents, you know, a kid and his parents. And, um, you know, couldn't afford to do anything else there and pitched for, the, pitched for Pierce and, you know, had a great year, had a great time and then got drafted by the Rangers. And again, my father, uh, he said, you know, we wanted $350,000 to sign in the third round. And they said, that's not third round money. That's second round money. And they offered, I think two eighty five. So we were off by, you know, 60,000 bucks. And my father said, you know, Barry's going to go play in the Cape, which was a, you know, at that time it was the premier college summer league. And he said, you know, as soon as he sets foot on that airplane to the Cape, his price just went up to 500,000. And, you know, they kind of laughed at him and I said, Oh, okay, Joe. Uh, well, you know, we're, we're good. We're not going to sign him." And he said, and, and as soon as he gets back down into uh, California after that season, his price is 750. And <laughs> I mean, he was just a savage businessman. And, um, so, you know, the way the story went is I did come back, had a great Cape year, came back, went to Grossmont junior college, a, a third college before I got to SC and, um, you know, came back to SC and I ended up going in the first round and, you know, everyone that laughed at me and my father for making these crazy decisions were saying, well, wow, it it actually happened.
1: Ended up working out for you. How'd you enjoy your time at SC? It's, have you been up there recently? Cause it's, it's a different world than, well, you were, you were, I'm trying to think you, you were there in 99, 99. so I, I was there 10 years, 10 years earlier than you. It was really different. Then, but but you go up there now and it's like a different world. Is it uh, really? um, were you a um Rio 50 guy or a Nine O
2: guy? <laughs> I only remember the Nino. What's the 50? Five-oh?
1: <laughs> 502. I think that was like the Sports Oh was it? The, the Sports Guy Bar and then the Nino was that's the nino's still there. It's, <laughs> that's uh, incredible. I, I think that was like the Fraternity and in the sorority bar. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's good, though, Barry. You didn't know either one.
2: Yeah, no, uh, I was I was only there for four months, so it, you know, it's it was very focused. I came there, I pitched four months, and you know, it was it was awesome. You know, I mean, it was an incredible experience, and uh, definitely different than you know being at the beach in Santa Barbara. But I mean, it was just an entirely different level of like you know the campus in general is just so mind blowing. So it, it was really nice to be able to be a Trojan in my life.
1: You played for Gillespie.
2: I did, Mike Gillespie. That's right.
1: Very cool. All right, 99. First round pick at, uh, for Oakland. You're ninth overall. You head off to Visale. You got to you got through the minor leagues really quick. I think the end of that first year for you after signing, you end up in AAA already. You touched it. I think your last start of the year was in Vancouver. By the way, great mm-hmm. place to great place to pitch. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's what you hook up your buddies. I think Mulder and and, and Huddy are on that team. And that's going to be kind of foreshadowing for for a lot of your career and what's to come and what's to come for the Oakland A's. Um, how was that minor league for you? Did you did you miss a beat? You seem to you seem to take to it pretty well because you went up the ladder real quick.
2: Yeah, the cool thing about, you know, being at a kind of a premier D1 school was that you were used to that high competition, high level competition. So after signing, you know, they put me right in a high A ball Um You know, so you bypass low A, obviously rookie ball, but you bypass low A and mid A, go right in a high A. So I went to Visalia, which was great, just a couple hours north. Um, And at that time, my mother was dying in the hospital. Um, Her liver was failing. And so it was a very interesting situation where, you know, I'm achieving the greatest moment of my life, my baseball dream first round. And at the same time, my mom, you know, couldn't come to my games at SC because she's in the hospital about to get a, a liver transplant. And so that you know, I was in a ball for six weeks and a lot of it, I was going back and forth to the hospital. Um, And then I remember I was playing in Modesto, staying with a friend's mom out there. And they said, your mom just got her liver. She's getting her transplant in a couple hours. And so, you know, I took their car. I mean, I'll never forget. It was a blue Volvo station wagon. And I drove down from Modesto to LA and I got to be with my mom, you know, or in the hospital through that surgery. And she ended up, coming through it. And it was just amazing. And, um, you know, and a couple weeks after that got called up to double A, uh, went and pitched in the Texas league for two weeks. And then on the last day of the season there, you know, all the AAA guys were going up to the big leagues, uh, for September call-ups. And so, um, me and a guy named Bert snow got the call to Vancouver. So they, Cause a triple A team was in the playoffs. And so I got to go pitch in the triple A playoffs. We ended up winning the AAA A world series that year. And so, you know, getting home back to LA after, uh, you know, three months of just a whirlwind professional experience and, you know, kind of already having been in AAA. Um, I just, I just had all kinds of confidence going into spring training that next year.
1: Next year, you, you, you play half the season in Vancouver, you get called up in July for your debut. Um, you end up having a hell of a second half in 2000 you have 2774 Ernie. Uh, even though you you didn't come up till July 22nd, you end up getting a lot of votes for rookie of the year you end up 5th um pretty smooth transition to the big leagues and and considering you know it's 2000 1999 you're just getting drafted you're playing division 1 college which is you know as we all know is is great competition but nothing compared to the big league level uh but you kind of you kind of <laughs> it kind of slinked right in there and, and, uh, you were rolling from, from the get go.
2: Yeah. I mean, and I think my father, honestly, like, you know, I, he had a lot to do with that. And <clears throat> I really got into the weeds on kind of what that was like. I wrote a book <clears throat> a couple years ago and just really told the real story of, of what it's like, you know, to be kind of on these stages and these things that we did, you know, where people are kind of idolizing you, but really all the the baggage that comes with that. And and I had certainly a lot of the baggage uh, from my father, you know, not really being able to fully um, kind of break away, you know, as a man. And so for me, um, a lot of the decisions I made and even the confidence that I had was based on his confidence in me. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. So if my father was, you know, confirming that I I was good enough to do this, then I really felt that. And um, that trajectory really pushed me off pretty far in my career. And, you know, and then at the point where I kind of had to find my own confidence, it was a, it was a real turbulent um, transition into my autonomy, you know, and that was my kind of giant years, but I finally found it uh, toward the end of my career. But it's, uh, it's just interesting to look back at the beginning of my career, because yeah, it, I honestly just, I thought I was just, it was totally normal to just go out and dominate in the big leagues. And, um, you know, looking back, I'm like, man, I'm just so grateful that that's how it went. Cause you know, i watch games now. I'm like, I have no idea how I got anybody out.
1: It is. And we had a, we had a guy on the show, Todd Marinovich. Uh, And not to say that you guys are similar, but, but his father, very involved in his career and the shaping of his career and his upbringing and and what he did. And he talked at length about that, how important and, and, how his dad ran the show and, and he basically got him to where, to, to where he, he was. And he said, it was all kind of a dream growing up and, and getting to the, you know, playing in the NFL and, and, uh but it's just, it, it's interesting to me. You know, I had, a, it was so much different for me because my dad was gone and he was kind of removed, not gone in that sense, but he was off playing. So I never really interacted. My dad probably saw me play, Five or six games, <laughs> starting you know from from little league on, and he didn't really get to see me play mm. until I was t- till I was a professional. You know, you figure you get out of school, and and you've got your little league game in the afternoon. Well, my dad's at the ballpark getting mm. ready for for a big league game, so. I really didn't have the, and I knew, and I was, and I was cool with it. He was very supportive and mom was at all my games, but uh, my interaction with dad was the summer when I got to go to the ballpark and, and pal around and hang out there. But it's as, as far as him and I, it kind of, I loved it, Barry. Cause when I was a kid, uh, I tried to pitch it. Well, I was a pitcher and, uh, mm-hmm. It was great because Dad's like, all right, one thing you do, you don't throw curveballs. You know how it is with the young kids before you hit puberty, you don't throw breaking balls. And oh, my dad was never at the game, so I'm just ripping them off and, and striking everybody out. So that was an advantage to it. Ended up breaking breaking my arm at one point and Became uh, a middle infielder and, and probably probably served me a lot better that way. Um, That's awesome. 2001. Um, I I came back to the American League West that year and, and uh, got to see you guys up front in that Oakland ball club uh, with yourself, with with Timmy Hudson and, and Mark Mulder. And they were you were considered kind of the big three back then and uh, three young guys. Carrying the mail. You had, you had a, such a great young team. That's when, when Jason was there. Jambi ended up leaving a year later, but you had young players in Tejada and Chavez. And uh, we were a veteran team, that Seattle Mariners team but we always looked at you guys. It looked like, it looked like you guys were living in a frat house and we'd come to play it <laughs> and, and we had the ultimate respect for you, but it was, it was funny. Cause we had, you know, more of a veteran team and you guys were just these young stars up and coming, but it was fun. And we had a lot of battles in those early, early two thousands. Oh yeah. But, uh, oh yeah. You know, 2001, 2002, uh, you win your, Cy, your Cy Young award. And that was the money ball year. We had a, uh, we had David Justice on the program recently, and he talked about it. And I wanted to ask you, how realistic was that movie? That was the year you came back and got us. You won 21 in a row. But uh, Moneyball, I know Billy Bean loved being played by Brad Pitt. but Other, <laughs> than, that, other than that, how realistic was was Moneyball?
2: Yeah, Moneyball was, um, you know, so a lot of people don't know that the Moneyball, uh, the original Moneyball um, was going to be written and directed by an entirely different, you know, um, person. And um, we were going to play ourselves in it, Me, Mulder, and Huddy. And I remember it was during the All-Star break, one of those years. Um, I forget, like, 04 05 I forget. But, um, and I guess a week or two before they shot, you know, they kind of scrapped the entire project and they started over and they hired a new, you know, writer and new directors. And so... The result of that was what we all got to see. Um, And I think the reason that they scrapped the original project is because it was just probably an insider baseball movie. And, you know, they turned it into something that everybody's going to love. And so I think they focused on certain components of that year that were really great stories, obviously, you know, with the Justice and the Hatterbergs and Eric Burns and all that stuff. And, you know, they didn't focus as much on pitching um what wins ball games you know right and uh certainly in the postseason but also the fact that you know we had a we had an MVP and a Cy Young award winner on that team that year and that rarely ever happens in baseball and so neither of those things were mentioned um, so, you know, there were other reasons why we did well that year. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, that all the reasons they focused on weren't a huge part of it, but I think they did leave out a few, you know, key parts of the story.
1: A few tidbits. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You went 23 and five. You led the, you led the league in, in wins that year. Uh, you were an all-star for the first time and, uh, you end up going to the postseason. I got a question about nineteen ninety nine. I got to play uh, for the Atlanta Braves, and in my opinion, probably in my lifetime, probably the, the best one two three I've I've seen, and that was Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin. Oh yeah! And I to see it up. I got to see it up close. I got to play defense behind it. Wow. Um, but then I looked t- to you guys, and and I went to you know when I went to Seattle and we were playing you, I said these guys, you know it, it's tough to compare anybody to you know anybody from the past, but um, you guys were that young group of talented one two three, all different, all had different pitching styles, but equally effective. Um, but I, I, I remember how Maddox, Smoltz and Glad they were kind of, they'd hang out, you know, they had their differences. doesn't mean they were best friends and did everything together, but they did do a lot of things together on the road. They golf together. They're always talking, you know, you're, you're always when one of them wasn't pitching the other two were right there and you're always talking the game and, and talking hitters. Did you guys have that, that type of relationship in Oakland?
2: Yeah. You know, I think I was close to Huddy and I think that Mulder was kind of close to Huddy. Me and Mulder actually weren't that close. Um, And it may have just been, you know, kind of some kind of lefty first rounder rivalry thing, like, you know, nothing major, but just like a friendly kind of thing. Uh, Me and Mulder actually got close a few years later um, and we've remained close, you know, ever since. And so, um, you know, there were times when we would kind of go out here and there as kind of a, a, a threesome, I guess you could say, but Um, You know, my my road dogs were, you know, Huddy and um, Adam Pyatt and um, some of those other guys. Um, But like I said, me and Mulder developed a great relationship a little bit later than that.
1: 2003, you're an all star again. You go 14 and 12. Uh, 2005, 14 and 13. 2006, you're an all star. Once again, you go 16 and 10 uh and that's the year you got to make a decision you know you got like i said you guys were kind of like a fraternity over there and and i was always amazed uh, about the oakland situation and the a's even in the last 20 years is with the with the budget they have to work with in oakland they continue to turn it over time and time again and are always knocking at the door every year to go to that postseason with with limited budget and they're always kind of reinventing themselves and bringing up new young talented guys that get it done. Um, what do you attribute that to? And um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just kind of, what's, what's your outlook on that? Why are they able to continue to be successful? I know they're, they've been fighting for years to get that new stadium, to get that revenue they need to kind of to kind of be able to operate like the rest of the big leagues. But what do you, what do you attribute the success and, and the overturn? Cause everybody, you know, not everybody can do that. You, you can turn over your roster. You can, you can trade away players, which Oakland has to do. seems like every three or four years, get rid of guys that they've kind of groomed. But what do you see? I don't know. I just want your, your version of it.
2: Um, I mean, You know, my everyday world right now is music and songwriting and production. And so I can say that in this world, when you have limitations uh, creatively, it actually becomes a strength because you know that you have to operate within those parameters. Uh, And I think it's the same for what Oakland's doing. I mean, they have financial limitations, right? They're not going to be able to go out and sign the big dog. So they know that if they want to compete, they're going to have to go scout better. They're going to have to draft better. They're going to have to develop better in the minor leagues. And obviously, you need good personnel in line, you know, all the way down the chain to do that. Um, And, you know, that has not been a problem. Uh, Obviously, the way that they've managed themselves um, from Billy on down, you know, has been uh, incredible. But I I do think it's their limitations financially that force them to, you know, figure out other ways.
1: That's interesting. That, that, that is a really cool take. You know, I never thought about it in, in that realm. Um, after Oh six, uh, you got a big decision. You're a free agent. You end up signing a great deal with, with the San Francisco giants. You're just going, you know, you're staying in the Bay area. Uh, you signed a seven year deal. Um, but you're coming up, you know, from, from 1999 and you've always known just Oakland A's. Uh, was that tough for you to leave? Was the writing on the wall you knew they probably weren't going to be able to pay and this was inevitable. Uh, what made you choose San Francisco? Do you love the area that much? Take me through that decision that, that kicks you to the giants in 2007.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, every free agent year is different because you have a different class of free agents. And so the way that that one went is Jared Smith, uh, or Jason Schmidt was a pitcher for the Giants who signed very early with the Dodgers. So he signed, I think three or four weeks after the off season, he started, he signed with the Dodgers and he signed a three-year deal for, I want to say 50 something million. And so instantly that made my price go up because he was hurt a lot in his career. And so, you know, comparing, I had not missed a start through my first seven seasons uh, and also had good numbers. And so instantly my price, you know, jumped big time. Um, And so that, you know, after he signed with the Dodgers, you know, me and my agent, Scott Boris, we kind of knew that this is putting us in a certain position financially. Um, And, you know, to be honest, I was very close to signing with Seattle. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the, what, the way it works as a free agent is the owner, uh, the field manager, the general manager, and the owner generally will sit down and they'll court you. So they would come down and me and Scott Boris, my agent would sit at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. And, you know, we would kind of have these dinners and, you know, we've had the Mets down there and the the Mariners and the Texas Rangers, San Francisco Giants, um, and, the Mariners were actually offering, you know, uh, significantly more money than the Giants, but I was comfortable in the Bay. Um, you know, on paper, I knew that going into the National League West, you know, there was more pitchers parks there. Um, and so I certainly was expecting to, you know, pitch better. Um, but I had also, you know, a lot of personal issues I was dealing with. I had a, an ego that was super inflated i was living in hollywood at the time i was chasing celebrity women i was trying to be um the cool guy i was you know had these dreams of being like on the cover of us weekly and you know i just was a kid that was so taken by the celebrity culture and i think um you know even now with social media i think that all a lot of the kids are just consumed by that and so you know, for me, I started to make kind of being the man in Hollywood just as important as pitching well. And it was very difficult for me to internalize the idea of, you know, making these millions of dollars and having access to all these things. And, um, you know, ultimately became a very turbulent number of years as a giant, Uh, not because I didn't work just as hard or harder than I had before, but also because you know, at the root of it, I was pitching for approval. I was pitching for, you know, validation of, you know, being kind of deeply insecure. Am I good enough for this contract? And so I just really wanted to prove that I was good enough. And uh, it it was very difficult for me.
1: And I read, uh, getting ready for this, for this podcast, I read 2010, you kind of had a life changing moment. Um, because like you said, you're, you're, you signed this big. And at the time it was a huge, you know, especially financial deal. One of the biggest in baseball. And it's, I think it's easy to get caught up in that with the success. You're Cy Young award winner. You know, you're coming off, you're getting a lot of, you guys got a lot of press, even though you're in Oakland for being the big three. I mean, you were kind of famous. You were a famous guy at the time. You're running around Hollywood. You got tons of money. You can do anything you want. I think it's easy for a lot of young men to get caught up in that, in that world, you know, it, it's tough. But in 2010, you talk about, it was kind of a, a life changing moment for you. You know, in 2010, you're left off the postseason season roster yeah. uh, for the giants. They end up going on to win the world series. Take me through that.
2: Oh man. Uh, just a total nightmare. I mean, honestly, it was, you know, I said something in my book about this specific thing and, you know, the idea of just the book in general here, and I'm not trying to plug it, but it was, no, no, was, I, I was, wanted
1: to get, I wanted to get to it anyway.
2: No, well, I, I mean, I'm not into like, whatever. I'm just saying that like, for whoever's out there listening, like I, if, if somebody told me when I was in high school, you are going to aspire to be in the major leagues and make millions of dollars and win awards and do all these things, but it's still going to leave you empty inside. And you're not, it's not going to make you feel the way that you think it is Um you know, in a lasting sense, it's going to be amazing if you get there. But it's that, you know, it's that fuse and that like, you know, that bottle rocket that just goes up and, you know, that firework explodes. And then after that, it's all dark. And that's kind of like, I didn't know that, you know, because we are all, I feel like we're all kind of raised to think that all these things we see on TV and magazines are are going to ultimately make us happy. And so, you know, the idea behind the book, which was called Kerball, which was like life threw me a curveball. I thought, it was going to be all this stuff and it wasn't. And so after signing the big contract, going to San Francisco and doing all these things and having a life from the outside looking in that, you know, people would, you know, maybe idolize or think, you know, life's perfect, but really the most, you know, horrific kind of years of my life and depressing were the years I was making 18 to $20 million a year. I mean, and that sounds absurd, but you know, for four years of playing for the giants and really, just trying to go out there and pitch for approval and, you know, pitch for people to tell me I was enough, you know, and that I was worth it, um, was just very difficult. And so the culmination of that negative experience was, you know, after having a bad year in 2010 and, you know, they brought me over there to, to lead the team to the world series, you know, and so we're going to the playoffs and, you know, Bruce Boachby Bochy tells me that, you know, we got to go with our top four starters. And so we're going to leave you off the roster. And, you know, why don't you pack it up and go home, you know, and we'll see you next, you know, we'll see you next year in spree training, you know, just go regroup. And I was like, wait, Boach, like, I, how am I supposed to leave? I've been with these guys for eight months. How am I supposed to just go home and watch you guys on TV? And I had to convince him to let me stay, you know, just so I could work out, pitch in the bullpen and, you know, in case somebody got hurt. And so he was like, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we'll do that. And, you know, I basically came to the yard every day watching this team, you know, playing the playoffs. And I wasn't, I was like a ghost. I mean, I was making three, four, five times as much as any guy on that team, yet I wasn't good enough to go play. And, you know, the the admission I made in the book was that I was rooting against them. Um, You know, that's how my ego was controlling me is that, you know, I convinced myself that if I root against them and they don't win without me, then it proves that I was needed here. And, uh, you know, that's a terrible thing to say, but it also just shows that darkness that was in me and, you know, the, the kind of negative place that I was operating from. Um, and you know, they went and won. they went, they won the whole thing, I watched them win the world series in Texas and I'm sitting there during the champagne celebration. And I'm like, I mean, it was literally the most miserable feeling of my entire life is like being in that champagne celebration. And, knowing that I hadn't contributed anything and I'm making 18 million bucks. You know what I mean? They brought me over to do it and I had zero to do with any of it. Um, Just, just a nightmare, man.
1: Wow. You you know, it's so true. And on a, on a smaller level, you know, I've, when you get hurt in this game and and you go on the disabled list, well, sorry, now it's the uh, not the disabled list anymore. What is it? I don't know. Whatever, I don't even know. <laughs> whatever the new word they made up for it. But you, you're right. I, I would go in there, and, and you could be a mainstay on that team. You know, I'm the three hole hitter, but I'm hurt. I'm on the I'm on the IL IL injured injured list, and I'd feel like a ghost. You, you said it. It must have been tenfold what I was going through. But I'd go in. You know, I knew I was inactive. I couldn't play. I'd be in the training room getting my work done. I'd feel bad, like I'm on the training table, but these guys actually have to play tonight. Yeah. I can't play. And, yeah, and, you know, that's all because I can't control it. I had an injury. Totally. Uh, but I couldn't imagine what you were where you were you speaking to. You're making more money than anybody on the team. You feel like you failed the organization. They leave you off the roster. And now, all of a sudden, they win the World Series. Almost at the time, it probably felt Despite you <laughs> and you're sitting yeah. there going now what do I do you know but yes. uh it, it's a real interesting take but I think 2012 you kind of a little redemption for you you know you go 15 and eight uh you're part of a pretty darn good start rotation I think it was Kane Lynch again uh Bumgarner and and yourself uh you end up having a great uh was it an ALCS or ALDS And I think you said you you pitched the game of your life. I think it was against the Cardinals. And then you end up pitching game one of the World Series. Would you guys go on to win? Uh, You end up beating Verlander in game one. So in 2012, winning that ring, uh, being a big part of that ring, was that kind of a a validation for you? Did Did it feel a lot better than where you were sitting two years prior?
2: Well, yeah. And I would be doing a disservice to this podcast right now if I didn't tell you what actually was happening there. You know, it's it's hard for me to just jump. And I know for the sake of time, we would. But, you know, to just jump from the lowest part of my life to win the World Series, because it just doesn't make sense for the listener, I don't think. And I think it's not doing justice to the human side of all of us. Right. So I'm just going to dig down just for a second on 2010, because after coming home when my team won the world series, you know, I'm in LA now, right. Very surface town. And I go to call up some of my friends and hang out with them. But a lot of my friends were now hanging out at another ball player's house, um, who was a friend of mine that was also on the giants and Brian Wilson. And, uh, you know, Brian became a very close friend, um, in 09 and 08. And out of my own insecurity, I told Brian that he can't You know, I didn't want him staying in my house anymore and that he should get his own place because it was too difficult for me to see Brian becoming, you know, a very famous and incredible closer while I was tanking in my career. And so essentially I kind of pushed him away as a friend. So I come back to L.A. looking for support for my friends and they're all at Brian's house. (laughs) So, you know, not only did my baseball career go away, I didn't have any friends like that wanted to be around me. And then on top of that, my father had a stroke uh, just a week into that playoff run in 2010 and was on basically life support life support for two months in the hospital. My mother had already passed away a couple of years earlier. So, you know, and being how important my father was in my journey as well, you know, I got stripped of anything and everything that ever gave me comfort um, or confidence in my life. And so I was forced to really start relying on myself at that point uh, and not on anything else. And, you know, I went into a 12 step program uh for codependency which is essentially, you know, being obsessed with the the opinions of other people. Um that's what codependency is. Thinking that it's always about you. Um and that kind of cracked my head open to the idea that, you know, there was this thing bigger than me. Step 2, you know, willing to acknowledge there's something bigger than I am, you know, there's a higher power that can restore me of my sanity. And I had no sanity. And so that created a, 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 an opening, you know, in my heart to something bigger than me. Cause it was always just about me, 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 me. Um, never gratitude, never any of that coming up through those years. And, um, you know, and so seven months later in 2011, I gave my life to God and I said, I'm so sick of living for myself. You know, it's just a dead end road. I'm never going to feel fulfilled. And so I started living for God Uh, And it's still a daily, you know, it's still a daily challenge because we all have vices that we're fighting, but we know we shouldn't do them and all these things. But now I had this kind of helper. Um, And so now we can talk about 2012, because now I was going out there in 2012 and saying, I'm not pitching for my identity, you know, to be validated. I'm not pitching because I'm insecure and I want you guys to like me. And I really just stopped caring about everybody telling me i was the greatest and that i was worth the contract because you know it, i just had to get off that treadmill off that you know it was like that rat in that wheel that just kept going and so finally you know in 2012 playoffs i was able to just say you know what i don't even care if i give up 10 runs today like i just want to go out there and do my best and i will feel okay if i go out there and suck but at least i just gave it everything i had instead of sabotaging myself and, you know, doubting myself left and right and being afraid of every hitter that was up there and every fan that walked by me that didn't look at me the right way, you know, um, that just changed everything. And so being able to go into that World Series, um, you know, and beat Verlander and, you know, beat the Cardinals in their yard and the, you know, NLCS, all those things really were just because I, I finally let go of the reins of life. And I just said, I can't control everything and, and I can't do it alone.
1: That's very cool. And, and it's so true. And I, I've been to a 12 step program on my own, you know, and I've, I've touched on it here on the, on the show before, but it really is because we are, we have a tendency as human beings, not just necessarily uh, you or me, but human beings, we have a tendency to worry if everything is about us and it's me, me, me. And we're very selfish. I think, uh, you know, by nature, uh, and at certain points of your life, especially usually adversity <laughs> is what leads you to these things and these self-realizations. So you have to go through something pretty tough. You at the time, you know, you're trying to live up to this contract. And in your mind, no matter what anybody like you mentioned, no, what, no matter what anybody told you in your mind, you were failing. But you were doing it for the wrong reasons. And and that's kind of a cool story to hear that from you, you know, from the depths of where you were in 2010 and, and getting to the point that that cracks me up. Fear the beard. You're worried about your buddies hanging out with fear the beard. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, they're, they're not really Barry's buddies then if, if they're doing that. But that's a realization. and That's part of growing up. And it's something you went through. But in 2012 to sit on that podium. And and win that World Series and get that ring, and that had to be pretty a pretty cool moment. I think it's a pretty cool moment because not too many of us, first of all, get to go to a World Series, let alone win one. But secondly, from from all you had been through from from nineteen ninety nine being that number one pick to being the the toast of the town at Oakland to the tough times in in San Francisco, finally in twelve hosting that trophy, it had to be pretty rewarding.
2: It was. I mean, it was surreal because, you know, I always thought if I could just win a World Series and, you know, kind of vindicate myself in the eyes of the Giants fans, that would just be the ultimate high. But when I finally got there, you know, I remember a media person was asking me after the World Series in Detroit, you know, do you feel redeemed? You know, all the Giants fans, you know, they're just so happy you came here and you helped us win, you know, and it's like, No, like I wanted redemption for five years before that and I never got it. But once I stopped being obsessed with being redeemed and having all the fans finally say I was worth it, then it happened, you know? And it's like, at that point, I didn't even care. I wasn't so desperate for everybody's approval at that point, you know, because now I was like, listen, I'm, I'm living for God here. And, you know, and I felt like God wants me to do my best. I have these gifts, go out there, do your best and give the results up. That's it, you know, versus at all costs, win, no matter what, sell your soul to win the game, you know, like, (laughs) right. uh, and I feel like that's the lie that we all learn growing up is like, at all costs, do it, you know? And it's like, that's a great recipe for being miserable your entire life. You know what I mean? And so for me to finally get that thing and then realize this actually, what I didn't even, I didn't have even much to do with this. I couldn't even take credit for it. Cause it's like, I was too busy taking credit for everything up to that point. But when it finally came, I was just grateful. I was like, I don't even know how this happened, but I am so grateful. And you know, I have the two rings now that I have the 10 ring and the 12 ring. And the ironic thing is that I used to hate that 10 ring. I mean, that was a symbol for my biggest failure in my life. Um, but what that ring taught me and where I, you know, the lessons I learned and the things that I, you know, kind of opened my mind up to as a result of those hard times you know, are way more important than the 2012, you know, when I was the the guy, the hero for a night or two, you know what I mean? And because now it, just as a, a human being, aside from the game, uh, you know, it's all about how we grow and how we, you know, become wiser and we make better decisions as we get older. And, you know, all the struggle of 2010 really made me who I am today.
1: A very cool story. 13, uh, ends up being your final year you take 2014 off and uh you know we played against her uh, each other quite a bit we went to the same alma mater but you know barry zito and brett boo we, we don't really know each other off the field too much you know little interactions here and there sure. uh, to, in 2015 i was a, uh i worked as a special assistant under billy bean for the oakland a's and and i got to come see you pitch and and you signed in 15 back with the Oakland A's. You went to the minor leagues, you went to AAA in Nashville, and uh, I got to come down and see you for three or four days. And it kind of for me, because at that time, I was still kind of fighting those feelings of, man, I I really miss the game. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm giving back any way I can being here with the younger players, passing on some of my knowledge that I had as a player. But I remember I got, do you remember this? You got to, you were pitching. And you were pitching against an old teammate of mine who who in the early 2000s, you you pitched again a lot. And Freddie Garcia and yeah. both of you, both of you were making you were making comebacks. And I saw <laughs> Freddie and, you know, I'm down downstairs and, and uh, you know, working with the kids in the cage. And and Freddie comes by and big Fred, booty, booty, booty. I said, big Fred, what are you doing here? I got Zito in my clubhouse. You're in that <laughs> clubhouse. You guys are pitching. And I was conflicted. I'm sitting there. I'm an Oakland A guy. You know, I've never played one down with Barry Zito. I've played against him a lot. I've I've gone to battle many a night with Freddie Garcia, my horse in Seattle, and I'm conflicted. I'm like I work for the A's. I got to be pulling for Zito, I, I, and I am. I'm pulling like hell for you. I'm pulling like hell for Freddie. I don't want anybody to get a hit. I don't want anybody to lose. I forget what ended up happening. You guys are, you guys were both kind of at that point shells of your of yourselves when you were in your heyday. Sure, but, but it was a it was a tough night for me. People were asking me, like, "What do you think about this?" I said, "I'm really conflicted here. I want uh, Barry to do so well. I want Freddie to do so well. And those things are fighting in my head." but I remember that that was a, that was a cool moment for me.
2: That's amazing. Yeah. I remember that night seeing Freddie out there and just, you know, gosh, Freddie was an absolute horse, man. And, you know, on the mound there in the early 2000s. So that's cool. Yeah. It was really cool being able to kind of hang with you in the dugout too. I thought, you know, I just like, when I wasn't pitching, you know, I just loved it. Conversations that we would have. And I think in Oklahoma, um, I remember Oklahoma city, you were there and we were talking and, um, so that was always cool. And it's always cool to get to know somebody off the field after, you know, going heads up with them in big pressure games, you know, for so many years. And you're like, oh yeah, this, this is like a regular human being, right? Like we, you know, we <laughs> kind of forget that sometimes.
1: Yeah. We love to hate each other. And Then usually yeah. the, the guys we meet off the field are like, yeah, I kind of like them. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so that 15 season, you end up getting to the big leagues and ended up the last time you pitch. Um, but you spent that pretty much that entire year in Nashville, and that's where your music got started. Uh, really did, start, yeah. Really started getting started. Um, so you retire. Where'd you go from there? I know you're, you're, you're head over heels now in your music, and, and you got the studio out in Nashville and you're working day and night. Uh, I know in 2017, you dropped your first EP, No Secrets. Uh, You did. I want you to touch on before we get out of here. I know we're on a little bit of a time constraint. Uh, You did season three of The Mass Singer. I want to hear about that a little bit. But just tell me, (laughs) tell me about, tell me about your music and how's that going for you? And I know it's your passion these days, uh, but take me through that, that first EP, Mass Singer. Give it all to me.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I I always thought I, my dream always for many years was to be a producer um, and a writer and to to produce artists. So that's been a dream, literally, you know, even from the baseball days. Um, and so I always thought I was going to be doing that in L.A. Uh, and pop music is where I wanted to be. And so um, you know, I basically landed out here and hooked up with a guy from ASCAP and started writing songs for almost three years on Music Row out here. And the way it works in Nashville is, you know, you get in rooms with two guys to uh, you know guys or girls, it's always three people and you write a song and you know you send that song to your publisher if you have one and they pitch it you know to artists to cut it. and so I was hard in that world. Um, and then I took a couple years off to write my book and in that time you know I really got to sink into what I truly wanted to do in my life, which was produce. and so uh, took about two and a half years and learned logic, uh, which is production software. Um, you know, built my dream studio out of my home and you know, I'm sitting here next to my grand piano and surrounded by my synthesizers and got my patch bay and all my good, you know, my my dorky computer gear stuff. And um and yeah, now I get to work with, you know, I get to write songs with young artists and um, you know, I'm producing their songs and um, you know, I'm just on the path, man. Um, you know, I got my heroes and I'm in the process of getting a mentor that I can work with um to really speed up the timeline. But I'm absolutely having a blast out here uh, doing what I love every day. And, you know, I'm, I'm nine to five in the studio and I get to have a wonderful family life outside of that. Um, you know, but I'm, I started at the bottom and, you know, climbing my way up again, climbing my way up again. And it feels amazing.
1: Mass Singer, you enjoy it?
2: Mass Singer was an incredible experience, uh, walking around on a stage, but couldn't even see out of the mask, you know, singing live. Um, learning a new song every four or five days. I mean, it was intense. Uh, I thought I was going to get eliminated the first weekend and ended up getting to the top four. And so I was as shocked as anybody, <laughs> but, uh, I'll never forget it, man. Uh, strike out for troops. Is that st-
1: uh, is that still going on or no?
2: No, that was a, that was an amazing thing that, uh, that we had for the vets when I was playing. Um, yeah, but, but my passions now, there's actually an amazing group out here in Nashville called Creative Vets, and they pair up, um, you know, veterans that have suffered PTSD and Uh, I think it's called PTS now, but, um, and we get in rooms with these guys and we write songs and it's, they get to tell the story that they couldn't actually tell their wife or their children about how they feel inside. And we get to help them put it into a song and then we produce it out. Sounds like a radio song and they take it home and they play it for their family. And it's just incredibly cathartic for these guys.
1: Uh, we've talked about your book a few times. 2019, you wrote the book Curveball, How I Discover Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. Where can uh, the fans out there get the book?
2: Yeah, the books, you know, I believe it's on Amazon and also uh, Um, Yeah, and we can we got signed ones, too, if you go to the website. But uh yeah. For anybody out there that thinks, you know, uh, I don't know, money, women, you know, fast cars and big houses are going to make them happy. I mean, I you know, this was the book was kind of my thing saying, lay hey, I experienced all the things I thought was going to, you know, make it all happen. And uh, I'm over here still searching. So there must be something bigger and, and deeper and, um, you know, bigger and better than just a lot of this material stuff that we think is going to make us happy.
1: Uh, sports industry, being a big league baseball player now musician, producing music, which is tougher?
2: Oh, man, Uh, I would say the music is tougher only because, you know, the pool of competition uh, is a little bigger. I mean, everybody with a laptop is basically your competition. Uh, You don't really need physical kind of attributes um, to compete. But I think also, uh, you know, as ballplayers, Brett, you know this more than anyone, especially come from a baseball family. That's all we knew. You know, and a lot of times I think as young players with talent, we're just on autopilot. We don't really know what we're up against. Um, And so for me, you know, being in being, you know, my in my early 40s and, you know, uh, kind of knowing what I'm up against and being in probably one of the most cutthroat, you know, songwriting towns in the world. um, It is hard, but, uh, you know, it makes it even more fun when you get there.
1: Barry Zito uh pretty awesome man this is this is such a cool this has been such a cool show and and so much insight and so much so much good stuff just for life and and uh just some of the stories the trials the tribulations you've been through i think it's going to benefit a lot of people out there listening to the boon podcast thank you so much for coming on and what we do each and every boon podcast at the end is we bring the voice dan levy in for a question for Barry from the fans. Dan?
0: <laughs> Barry, we'll make it quick and short for you. This one comes from Samantha in Cincinnati, and she wants to know this: why the number 75? It's a great
2: question, and my goodness, do I love your voice. Um, <laughs> you are.
0: Samantha's got a great voice.
2: Uh, Come on. Um, So 75. So when I came to the A's, uh, nobody actually knows this, but I was a huge Chris Benson fan. Chris Benson was the first pick in 1996 uh, out of Clemson, and he wore number 34, I think because of Nolan Ryan. But I was a diehard Chris Benson fan. I used to watch his videos and, um, you know, of his playoff games at Clemson. And so when I got to the A's, I see I wore 34 all the way up from USC all through the minor leagues. But when I got to the A's, Raleigh Fingers had already had that number retired. And so I kind of went up, this, you know, 35, 36, all the way up. And I thought, what looks the best with Z-I-T-O above it, almost in more of like a symmetrical way. Um, and so, you know, the answer was twofold, 75 or 57 was going to be it because it had like a nice shelf on top. But also I wanted a number that I could keep my entire career. And I, I knew that 57 was going to be a grind going to other teams if I ever did. And so 75 is kind of what I landed on.
0: And the nerd of me, the audio nerd of me wants to know what microphone are you using?
2: <laughs> right now well as you know a podcast it's either an sm7b sure right or it's going to be a an electro voice right so i got the sm7b
0: um, right now i'll you tell go. you what you guys are nerds i was gonna say i've never been more nerdy about a guest in my entire time working with you uh,
2: i will tell you i got the vintage u87 over there um, nice. i had a, i had a girl coming in to sing vocals today but she just canceled so uh but yeah she'll be singing into that next week so the the neumanns are great too
0: Well, the jealousy is all on this side of the microphone. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. We really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, Barry. It's been a great time, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, Brett. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director and producer and the voice of on the boom podcast ep executive producer rich herrera digital content gets done by liz landry please share the boom podcast with neighbors and friends make sure you subscribe to the boom podcast so you never miss an episode of the show and while you're at it give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the boom podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show to follow brett boone on social media he is at the moon 29 you can follow me on bass on air b-a-s-s on air and for all of us here on the boom podcast i'm dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Take care.